verse 1 through 17. Again, it can be found on Pew Bible, chapter, uh, page 697. Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, the crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. May God bless the reading of his word. So we enter Passion Week and Easter season in an incongruous context this year as we're in the midst of campaign season and a particularly vitriolic campaign season. Now on the Democratic side, as Hillary comes closer to clinching the number of delegates needed for the nomination, the the rhetoric has toned down as she's already trying to uh, welcome Sanders followers into her fold and and muting her criticisms and, in fact, even congratulating Sanders on a hard-fought loss. But, of course, as Trump, on the other hand, comes closer to clinching the nomination or gathering the number of delegates he needs for the nomination, things are really heating up on the Republican side, whether it's uh, Hillary versus whether it's Hillary versus Bernie or it's uh, Trump versus everybody else, it's been kind of a heated context, heated environment. Now, we prefer, I think, to keep out of this sort of thing. Uh, we keep, prefer to keep out of it when we're away from church. We especially prefer to keep out of it when we're in church. So we have this notion of a separation of church and state, which doesn't always work, but at least as, you know, we, we recognize that politics is kind of mm, ugly and, and pleasant and sometimes dirty, and as Christians we want to 
just keep as far away from it as we can. But it's not entirely feasible, actually, to separate church and state. Of course, on the Republican side, you notice that uh, Ted Cruz announced his candidacy for presidency at Liberty University, the largest Christian university in America, perhaps the world. And Donald Trump went there to speak and was warmly embraced by the president or chancellor of Liberty University. So you see, Republicans, we know, don't always separate church and state or faith and politics. But even the Democrats don't entirely get away unscathed. Right now, it's Hillary versus Bernie, and, and the big competition is who's more faithful to the poor and the working poor and the middle class. But once the election season rolls around, based on previous history, we can figure that politics and religion are going to mix again. And people are going to talk about how their faith impacts their politics. Because this is how we do things in America. But it's not just America, of course. Most of the rest, well, much of the rest of the world, apart from Northern Europe, much of the rest of the world doesn't even try to separate religion and politics. We got Islam and nationalism co-mingled. We've got China in its antagonism toward religion. In, in any event, both are combinations of church and state, of religion and politics. Now, a similar situation existed in first century Palestine and at the first Palm Sunday. The Jewish expectations in the first century had been shaped by the Old Testament and the promises there. And they were very much commingling faith and politics. Here are the promises of the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, speaking to Jews who had suffered Historically, they had suffered attack and conquest by the superpowers around them. They had been dragged into exile. They were finally freed in a way. They were allowed to go back to their home country, but they were still under the thumb of foreign superpowers. And the promise of Zechariah came to them. The promise of God through Zechariah came to them. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, celebrate, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And God promises, this king will take away the chariots from Ephraim. He will take away the, the foreign occupiers from the northern part of Israel. He will take away the war horses from the, Jerusalem in the southern part of Israel. Israel will be freed of these foreign armies. And the battle bow will be broken. You won't need to fight anymore. God will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. The promise of Zechariah to the people of Israel is that one day you will be freed from foreign occupation. One day you will be freed from conquerors. One day you will be freed from the infidel. God will do this. And he will send you a king, not on a stallion to lead you to war, but on a donkey to lead you in procession as a symbol that the war has now ceased. There will be no more need for war or for stallions. It will be a time of peace 
and prosperity. Your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. God is promising through the prophet Zechariah that he will deliver Israel politically, militarily, and they will celebrate and worship him without oppression by foreign infidels. You see, religion and politics commingled. And that promise of Zechariah from chapter 9 of a, of, a, of a king, a God king who's going to rescue Israel, that promise, that final victory, that final celebration march, according to Zechariah 14, that march begins from where? The king comes and gathers and starts this victory parade from the top of Mount of Olives. And from there, peace spreads through Jerusalem, through the northern part of Israel and the southern part of Israel, and over all the world as God reigns, as we sang in worship songs today. From the Mount of Olives, this great king will come, riding on a donkey, in peace, bringing victory and prosperity and peace to all of Israel. This is the promise of God. Not that politics and religion can be separated, but that one day religion will conquer politics. God will conquer political powers. God will conquer all the worldly superpowers and lead his people in peace and prosperity. And he'll do so through a king who rides a donkey. That was the promise of Zechariah chapter 9. That was the promise that Israel awaited the fulfillment of. And they waited. One century. A second century. A third century. Then a fourth century. And then, on the original Palm Sunday that we commemorate today, Jesus sends his disciples into a town nearby. As they approached, in Matthew chapter 1, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, where? on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie the donkey and colt and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. You see, Jesus recalls this promise from Zechariah. Jesus intentionally enacts this promise from Zechariah. Jesus is mingling religion with politics in order to get the crowds in touch with this promise from Zechariah in order to claim that he is this king. Jesus connects his congregation, his listeners with this promise. Matthew, in the gospel, realizes the connection between religion and politics here. This took place, Matthew says, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus intended the connection. Matthew noted the connection. But not just them. The crowd realized what Jesus was saying. And they took him at his symbolic word. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. 
And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. What does Hosanna mean? Save us, O son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Save us, it's a prayer. Or it's an exclamation. God is saving us. Jesus recalls the promise of Zechariah. Matthew interprets the promise of Zechariah. And the crowd realizes as Jesus comes in on this donkey, they realize what's going on. And they applaud the coming king who's going to deliver them from their enemies. Jesus mixes politics and religion. Matthew mixes politics and religion. And the crowd mixes politics and religion. We see that the two are inextricably entwined, that Jesus' coming has not only religious significance for our spiritual lives, but Jesus' coming has political significance for their civil lives and political significance for our civil lives. The crowd here is citing the words, or they're enacting the words of Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26. As Jesus comes in on this donkey, the pilgrims who are coming for the feast of Passover would typically recite the words of Psalm 118. And so as Jesus comes into this city, they call up these words from Psalm 18. Lord, Psalm 118, Lord, save us. Hosanna. Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we will bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the hands of the altar. The crowds are reciting this, celebrating, singing worship of God as Jesus marches in on this donkey. Because they know what he's promising to do. They know that he's enacting the words of Zechariah. They know that he's promising to deliver Israel. Of course, they think it will be a political, military deliverance. But at least they capture this. Jesus is coming as the King of God to deliver his people. That's the promise. And remember what Psalm 118 says. With branches in hand, we will join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. With branches in hand, we will join in the celebration, the procession, up to the temple. And so as Jesus rides in on the donkey, the crowd grabs branches and lays them down in front of him in fulfillment of the words of Psalm 118. And then Jesus goes. In fulfillment of 118, he goes to the temple. We see, we read, Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling there he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. Why does Jesus go to the temple? Because Zechariah 9, 
And Psalm 118 said he would go to the temple and they would celebrate, follow him to the temple and they would celebrate God's goodness. And Jesus, as the crowds lay the branches down, he does what Psalm 118 said, he goes to the temple. But they don't celebrate. They were looking for God to vindicate them religiously and politically. They were looking for God to rescue them from their foreign oppressors, the infidel Romans who occupied uh, Israel at the time and occupied Jerusalem at the time and sometimes threatened the temple. They were looking for God to intervene religiously and vindicate them politically. They had merged religion and politics and, and God was on their side religiously or they were on God's side religiously and therefore God would be on their side politically. And Jesus sits astride this donkey, comes in in fulfillment of Zechariah 9 and they say, God is fulfilling his promises of Zechariah 9. This king is coming and he will fight for us. We won't even have to fight. He will conquer our enemies, cast out the infidels and we will rule superior over all the world. We're on God's side. So he's on our side. And Jesus does what Zechariah 9 said he'd do. And, and he sits astride this donkey on purpose from the Mount of Olives. So everyone would know what he was claiming. And he rides into the city and, and the people recognize. It's not just Matthew, his follower, who can interpret it. It's the crowd recognizes. And they, and they Lord save us, Hosanna in the highest. And they throw down their branches in front of the donkey in a, in a celebration of this victorious king coming. And the Old Testament told them, as they recited, as he, as he marched into Jerusalem, the promises they had from the Psalm 118 told this king will go to the temple, and the king goes to the temple. But it's no longer a festal procession. Now, Jesus takes together a, a whip and throws the money changers and the traitors out of the court of the Gentiles. It's not a festal procession, it's a cleansing. A cleansing of the temple. A cleansing of the most holy site in all of Israel. The, the most holy site in Israel, Jesus is saying, is entirely corrupt. They're not on God's side. They can't appeal to religion to save them politically. Actually, when God comes in, when Jesus comes, he doesn't deliver, he attacks. And he casts them out of the temple. My house will be called the house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. He said, you know, they're so caught up in their religious rituals that they have forgotten the point of it. It's a house of prayer. Yes, it's Passover. Yes, sacrifice is necessary. Yes, you've got to buy the lambs. But they've got so caught up in the ritual of it all that they've distracted from the purpose of it. It's meant to be a house of prayer. And now it's a marketplace. Even worse, it's just where people hang out. There's no virtue here. They're looking for religion to save them. And Jesus comes 
and cast them out. But he does something else in the temple. It's something that we miss the significance of. In verse 14, we read the second scene. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. Mostly, I think, when we are in conversations, you know, we try to be coherent. Right? Now, we may not expect that of the Bible. We try to be coherent, and one person says something, and the other person says something, responds to it. And you know how funny it is when you're in a conversation, and, and somebody just, their mind drifts, and they start talking about something else entirely that had nothing to do with what you're talking about, and you think, well, you know. But we don't expect coherence from the Bible. For some reason, we don't expect coherence from the Bible. I, I don't know why. So when we don't see coherence, we don't think about it. So here's Jesus coming in the temple, and clearly there's a significant incoherence here, or, 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 or contrary to expectation here, right? Zechariah, Psalm 18 said Jesus is going to come to the temple, they're going to have a great procession, they're going to celebrate, there's going to be military victory, political freedom, it's going to be a great time of worship and, and power. And there's a huge incongruity. Jesus comes, and, and it's not worship. He casts out the people that are trying to facilitate worship. He throws them out. But at least it's all coherent. And then we got this odd little thing happening right here. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. On the face of it, what does that have to do with anything else? You know, you've got the traitors in the temple and he throws them out. You've got Jesus coming in as promised. All of this makes sense except all of a sudden we read, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. What's that got to do with anything? Here's what it has to do. And, and we don't know it because we're not so familiar with the Old Testament. But, but Matthew's readers knew this, and Jesus knew what was going on. Right? Why Matthew put that here? Why it happened here? Why Matthew recorded it? If you go back to 2 Samuel 5, and I don't know this, is a commentary pointed out to me. But 2 Samuel chapter 5. When David first conquers Jerusalem. You see, Israel did not own Jerusalem. Jerusalem was occupied by the Jebusites. And David comes to conquer Jerusalem. And it will one day become the center of Israel's faith and the center of the nation. But right now, it's owned by the Jebusites. And David comes up to the walls of, of Jerusalem and threatens it. And the Jebusites mock him. They said, you're such a wimp. They said, the, our blind and our lame can defeat you. Now think about it. People that can't see are going to beat David and his army. People that can't use their arms are going to defeat David and his army. Our blind and our lame can defeat you. And so David finds a tunnel under the city and he conquers the city. And his response, because of that insult, he remembers that insult and he says, no blind, no lame will ever be allowed in this city. And David excludes the blind and the lame from the city of Jerusalem because of that insult from the Jebusites. Now you see what Jesus is doing. He doesn't merely cast out the religious leaders who are preoccupied with the ritual and have forgotten the point of it all. Jesus invites the blind and the lame. Jesus, the son of David, reverses the curse that David had put out. 
the blind and the lame are now invited into the city of Jerusalem. And not only into the city of Jerusalem. The blind and the lame are invited into the most holy place, in the most holy city, in the most holy nation. They are invited into the temple and they come and he heals them. He doesn't merely invite, he cures. So you see that Palm Sunday sends out two messages. One is a message of rebuke for the religious authorities who have got caught up in their ritual and forgotten the purpose that this is to be a house of prayer. And, but it's not just a rebuke, because Jesus comes in judgment, but he comes also in grace. And it's an invitation to all those who've been excluded thus far. It's an invitation to them that they might be saved. Drawing this all together and relating it back to our age and our issue. What I would say is it really makes three points for us. First of all, it's a call to look to God. Jesus does bring the salvation that God has promised. Where is our hope? Our hope is not in politics. Our hope is always in God. We hear these apocalyptic statements as people look at the political environment. You know, if Trump wins, I'm going to move to Canada. You know, if Hillary wins, it'll be the end of America. No. Our salvation comes from God and God alone. Our God reigns, we sing. Jesus is king. Why? Those songs capture the biblical sentiment that religion and politics can't be separated, but that religion, our faith, must trump our politics. We celebrate God's reign. Oh, no pun intended. <laughs> now if I can bring us back to the focus here. We celebrate a great God who is God not only over our spiritual lives, but also over our political lives, and not only over our individual lives, but over our country. We look to God, not to politics, to save us. Secondly, Palm Sunday is a hint of what's to come. We don't see it yet, but it's a hint. It's a call to worship. We sang today about Jesus reigning. Oh. Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem as a king. What did Zechariah expect? A king who would conquer and give peace. And what did Jesus do? He's a king who dies. There's only one ruler that is ever worthy of our loyalty. There's only one ruler who's worthy of our praise. And that's the ruler who's not driven by ego or a lust for power. That's the ruler who gave his life for us, his subjects. So Palm Sunday is a call to look to God, not to politics. It's a call to worship Jesus, not to be loyal to political leaders. 
and Palm Sunday is third. It's an invitation for us to lower our expectations about what politics can attain or the harm that politics can do. We trust in God alone, not in our political leaders. We should be politically engaged. We should have values and convictions. We should pursue those at the ballot box. But fundamentally, we come to this. Palm Sunday is a celebration. It's a commemoration. It's a reminder that God reigns not only over our spiritual lives, but also over our political lives. Not only over our individual lives, but also over our civic lives and over our country. Psalm Sunday is a declaration that Jesus has come like no other political leader. And he has given us a deliverance that no other political system can provide. We celebrate Jesus as king on Palm Sunday. The king who reigns and the king who dies. Let's pray together. Jesus, we would honor you today, not only because you are a king, but because you are redeemer and savior, not only for your power, but also for your death for us. In your name we pray. Amen.